0: All right, welcome Langorinos um, to our first episode of Lango Pod. This is a podcast um, all about how to use linguistic principles for more effective language learning. Um, And we are members of the Lango team. Lango is a language school in Dallas. We're located in Koreatown, Dallas on I-35 and Royal Lane. And we're not your ordinary language school. Uh, Our mission is to... Um, produce awesome language learning experiences for our community and for our students. And another unique thing about us is that we're all linguists. Um, all of our teachers have linguistic backgrounds. Um, and as part of our podcast team, we have our main host of our podcast is Peter. And I am gonna turn it over to him to introduce himself. And then Tyler will go.
1: Greetings Langarinos. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Peter. Uh, I have a PhD in linguistics from University of Hawaii. I focus on language conservation, formal syntax, phonology, and Austronesian linguistics. Tyler? And Tyler. Hi,
2: everyone. Uh, I'm the instructor here at Lango in Japanese, Chinese, French, and German, and occasionally English. <laughs> and my main interests among languages are uh, the Indo European family, that's the language that English belongs to, the Sino Tibetan family to which Chinese belongs, and one or two other languages here and there.
0: Wonderful. And I'm Lisa. Um, I have my PhD in linguistics from Rice University, I'm a a. and my MA and BA from UNT. And my main interest, uh, my focus in linguistics is on sociolinguistics, so how language varies and changes uh, based on the social. I'm also interested in designing language programs based in language science. And we're all very excited to kick off this first episode here. Um, I'm gonna turn it over to Peter to introduce our episode one.
1: Okay, so the first episode um, is is entitled, What Are Words Made Of? And we're gonna focus on the difference between letters and sounds, which should bring us to our first slide. (laughs) Which is called, words are not letters.
0: And enjoy the picture of the cute baby for a moment. We'll explain that in a second.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the first point we have to make is what is a natural language? this stands in contrast to things like a computer language, which is a stipulated unnatural language for the purpose of this conversation. So natural languages are spoken and signed Ah, but and question, what about everywhere Eskimo around about the world.
2: Klingon, do they f- fit into your conception?
1: Um, for the purposes of this conversation, Klingon is not a natural language because it was constructed by linguists. Mm-hmm. Even though it is spoken. It, it is, is spoken, spoken
0: though, yeah. There's quite a large community <laughs> of Klingon speakers.
1: There are some people who speak Klingon as an natural language is my understanding that there are babies who learn Klingon as a first language, which therefore would make it a natural language. So that, that is some important nuance. If you learned a language that was made up by somebody as an adult, for now, we're not going to count it as a natural language. Yeah. But in the case that babies learn it, as you can see in our picture, <laughs> then it becomes a natural language. And it's important to note um, that babies learn, as the slide says, babies learn the language of their environment, and any language a child learns this way can be referred to as their first language. People do not learn writing as babies. They don't learn to write a language naturally as an infant. But children that are um, exposed to a community of speakers or signers if they're using a sign language, will naturally acquire the language of their environment.
0: So for example, my little Eloise, she's being exposed to both uh, English and Korean. So my hope is that she'll acquire those, uh, those sounds right away.
1: And both of them would then be her first language. Indeed. So what about you, Lisa? Do you have two first languages?
0: I do. Yep, I learned English and Korean at the same time, too, similarly.
1: Okay, so for the purpose of our conversation, a first language is whatever you learn as a baby, even if it's more than one language, but it's not writing.
0: Right, in fact, they say um, writing is the man's greatest, or human's greatest invention, right?
1: It has been extremely helpful. (laughs) (laughs) So first we need to, when we're talking about the difference between writing and speaking, this is important for language learners um, because letters are not the same thing as sounds often. Now, to demonstrate this, we're gonna use the idea of homophones. If you have never heard of a homophone before, that is two words that sound the same, but they are spelled differently and typically also have different meanings. This, This is usually what we're talking about. But in this case, since we're just focusing on writing versus sounds, the important part is that they are spelled differently. Our first example here is higher, as in when uh, a company hires an employee and the other word, the other homophone, is higher. sounds the (laughs) same, but the meaning is high as opposed to low. This is higher than that. They are spelled differently. In case you're listening and not watching, Mm -hmm. hire the verb to acquire an employee is h-i-r-e and higher as opposed to lower is h-i-g-h-e-r. So very different spellings, but as far as I can tell, the same pronunciation.
0: Right. And that's going to be really hard, challenging for language learners of English. Absolutely. Here's a nice set. Another nice set.
1: The next one is two, two, and two. The first one is the number two. The second one is two, meaning also, or in excess. And the final one is to the preposition, or infinitive marker. So to swim, versus I swam too much, versus I swam two miles. Those are the three different meanings of to there, spelled T-W-O, T-O-O, and T-O, but all pronounced the same.
2: Although I would like to note that T-O especially has lots of variants, variant forms in which it can occur. Can be tough. It It
0: can be reduced. Yeah, that's true.
2: I that a lot with my English learning students.
1: The next one is there, there, and there. The first one meaning they are. The second one is the possessive for um, third plural in English. So their house. And the final one is there, as in kind of a direction or uh, an empty subject like there's pizza in the fridge. And their spelling is very different, even though they're pronounced, all three the same.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That sentence you just said, you had two of them. They're very very high frequency, too.
2: <laughs>
1: That's right. All three are pretty high frequency.
0: They're so high frequency, I think also uh, they're misspelled often, right? Mm-hmm.
1: This or, is a big, uh, you know, um, internet talking point, I will call it, where people often use misspellings of their to attack someone's argument online as mm-hmm. opposed to interpreting the intention. You can understand why people would misspell these regularly as they all sound the same. Mm-hmm. The distinction between them is taught in their spelling. It is not uh, when you acquire the sounds as a child. We could say maybe there is a dictionary in your mind and all three of them have the same spelling with sounds in your mind. Mm-hmm. The next pair is meat and meat, the first one being uh, meat as in the type of food, and the second one meat as in when two people connect to each other or are first introduced for the first time. So meat, M-E-A-T versus meat, M-E-E-T, but both pronounced exactly the same. The next one is prey and prey. The first sort of prey is the kind uh, that a predator hunts predator and prey, P-R-E-Y. The second one is P-R-A-Y, as in praying mantis, or the way um, a religious person might pray. Mm -hmm. But they are spelled differently and pronounced exactly the same, as is the theme of this whole column. (laughs) So the next one is through and through. The first through is spelled T-H-R-O-U-G-H, and that is as when you go through a tunnel. The second one is through, T-H-R-E-W, as in the past tense of throw, when you threw a ball. Again, spelled differently, pronounced the same. Our final example is blue and blue. The first one is the color, spelled B-L-U-E. And the second one is the past tense of blow, spelled B-L-E-W. There are many, many, many more, and I suggest you make a list yourself and see which ones you can think of. I'd also like to point
2: out there are cases of homophones where they're in fact spelled the same but are still different words. You have to found, found that's the infinitive, or the past tense found of find. Hmm. I would call those homophones too. Would Would you guys as well? I agree. Absolutely. So that spelling, that they're spelled differently is not really central to the definition.
1: Right. It's not central to the definition, but it's important. To point out that something can be spelled differently and, and yet pronounced the same way because there's a big distinction between sounds and spelling. Right. Okay, continuing with our discussion of letters versus sounds, I'm going to introduce some linguistic conventions to help further uh, investigate this point of sounds versus writing.
0: Let's get linguisticky now.
1: Right, you're going to see this throughout the podcasts and future podcasts, we have a little note that will pop up whenever we introduce really linguistic terms, which we're calling linguisticky, because the linguisticky (laughs) note.
0: In fact, there he is. There's sticky.
1: (laughs) There it is right there. Please find this in the blog, too. We are using it. In our upcoming book. and the upcoming book, which we'll talk a little more about uh, shortly. So the first convention I'd like to introduce is angled brackets. We use this to indicate written versions of a word. So I have here the written representation of a word. A written representation is also called orthographic. It's not that important for this. Or just uh, the spelling
2: in, in everyday English.
1: Right. We use slanted brackets to indicate the sounds that are represented in the speaker's mind. Now, these sounds that exist in the mind are called conventionally phonemes in English. Phone as in telephone, means sound. So we're going to list, uh, examine our list of homophones again, but this time we're going to look at the difference between spellings and the sounds you have in your mind. Let's do it. Okay, so the first one, going back again, we look at higher and higher. How I have uh, higher, both words are transcribed here as um h a a high front glide and r now this might might introduce some complexity particularly for people listening not watching but we have a problem when we want to represent sounds in the mind in that some vowels are longer and shorter and some vowels are composed of multiple articulations mm-hmm. So we want to, so there's a difference, for example, between two and two, right? You can hear the difference in that. We, we have those as one of our, thankfully, that's our next homophones. You can see they're both spelled the same way. <laughs> as
0: you mentioned, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, so in the case of higher, I hear not, not har, but I hear an I, this sound, and I'm representing it with two vowels that are one vowel. Another way to represent this is with a vowel and what we call a glide. So you may have learned sometimes Y as a vowel. Well, this is somewhat similar to what we're doing in linguistics. We can use Y or the small cap I's that I have there as the semi-glide for the Y sound that can be attached to I or W for the um, extended sound that goes with two in English. Moving on to there, there, and there, they are all represented uh, the same.
0: Let's note that this representation we're using of the sounds is in IPA, the International Phonetic Alphabet Notation. Um, and We're going to do a whole episode on this next time. But we just want to show you how, in general, thanks, Tyler, <laughs> we right. represent uh, the sounds here using the IPA.
1: Exactly. Thank you, Lisa we will get more into what is IPA, International Phonetic Alphabet, in the future. Uh, but for now, suffice it to say, these are the mental targets we're going for. And these representations all have convention. Um, if you were to Google it or reach out to us, we could point you towards uh, many wonderful resources to learn more about IPA. Mo- moving on to our next homophone, uh, which is meat and meet. They are both spelled the same way in the mind, M-I-T. this is interesting because what we're seeing is the vowels used in writing are rarely the same as the vowels used in the mind. Now in there, in one of them, the possessive one, it's very similar to the representation that I have given here in phonemes. Another person might give a representation that looks similar to there with E-Y. That's a conventional difference. What we see with meat is consistently the the vowel e is pronounced as e. If you study other languages, of course, you know the vowel e is almost always pronounced as a in other languages. Oh, you're talking about the vowel
2: letter e with the three lines, right? This always gets very confusing. Sound. Yeah. Vowel E, so let's Therein
0: lies the rub, right? Letters versus sounds. That's why we're talking about this.
1: Vowel shift. So you're talking about E,
2: right?
1: Yes. I'm alluding to the great vowel shift, which could be a topic of future conversation. Um, our next one is pray. And um, here again, we have a problem with trying to represent The sounds in the mind with writing, even when we're just talking about the sounds and we're not using conventional writing. So we have P, R, E, and then our small front vowel for pray. If you are looking on the video, you might have noticed that the R that we are using for our phonemic representations is upside down. It's different than the R we use when we write in English. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: This particular R is used to represent. In IPA to represent the kind of R we have in English, you might not know it, but the R we have in English is not extremely common. And that's why it has a special symbol in the writing. Moving on, we have through, and here you see that the TH is represented with a theta symbol, yeah, and the TH in there is represented with a thorn. I believe is the technical word. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's an e. that's not a thorn. Ed. An e. right? An e is great because that tells you the distinction. Here we have in writing, th as a sound of a tha, the sound in between vowels, mm-hmm. Then we have th later as as in a tha. So there's a big difference between those two sounds in the mind, and we even distinguish two words this way, thai and thy. Mm -hmm. Thy, we don't use that much today, of course, but if you were to look into historical forms of English, it is a commonly used word in English of historical times. Mm -hmm. Ed and theta are the name of the two symbols. Okay, moving on to our final homophone for this section is blue and blue. And you can see that the spelling in the mind is almost a combination of the two spellings in the real world. So... Some are more and less close to their phonemic representation and their orthography. But the main point of this whole section is just that letters are distinct from sounds, and this might be something tricky when you're learning a language or even thinking about your own language, your native language. Absolutely. You have anything you want you y'all want to add to that?
0: So much, but I will we'll save it for the <laughs> <laughs> we'll save it for a further discussion of IPA
1: it certainly brings to mind the next slide, the question proposed on the next slide, anyways. Why are words that sound the same spelled differently? And we've been hinting at it a little bit. It has to do with the history. So first, we need to establish like a fundamental um, observation of the science of language. And that is that all languages change, all of them, all the time, at different rates. This is one of the most uh, important contributions the study of language has to add uh, maybe to our understanding of the way of the way other people are. People will speak differently than you because their language, even if they speak English, is changing in different ways than your language, which may also be English. English used to be pronounced in a way that much more closely matches the way that it's spelled since then sounds have changed more than the spellings have changed so whenever a right, uh, language is written when it's first written typically mm-hmm. the people who arrange the written system in a language try to make it as close to the way the words are really pronounced as possible so a lot of times in languages that are, were written more first written more recently their orthographies match the real pronunciations more, right? Um, Tyler, maybe you can give us an example of an, a, a spelling in English that in the modern day doesn't look that way very much, but how it used to sound that way.
0: There's so many in English.
1: So one of my favorite
2: sequences of letters to look at on this topic is O U G H. I think all the words, there's a lot of very high frequency ones too that have this, and it's, Different in a lot of cases. We have through, where it's an ooh sound, like in blue. We have tough, where it's an uh and a fuh. We have thorough, where it's an o oh diphthong, double vowel sound. Uh, what else am I forgetting? I have Cough, s- different vowels still left. Which one? Cough. Cough, thank you. Still left, yeah. Through thorough. Some people say thorough also, so it can be a schwa. Those are the main ones. So that's what, four or five different? An old, well, the older stage of English, the OU combination denoted OU as it does in modern French still. We borrowed that convention from French. And the GH represented a velar fricative. That's a frictiony sound made with the back of the tongue. And it would have been a G or a H. So it could have been voiced or voiceless. So OUG or OUG has given all these different Ooh. reflexes, we call it in modern English, descendant sounds of the ancestral ones.
1: How does that work in cases like knight as in knight in shining armor, where it's spelled K-N-I-G-H-T? What might the historical pronunciation of that have been?
0: That's my favorite example. I always use this with my English language learners.
2: So German has a cognate word. A cognate is a pair of cognates, or whatever. A set of cognates descend from the same word in an earlier language stage. They have a word *Knecht*. K n E-C-H-T, can you spell it? it doesn't mean knight, it means servant, mm. but mm. it goes back to the same original word. And as you hear, Knecht, German keeps the K sounding before the N. So in older stages of English, we did that too, and we just, that sort of went out of style at a certain point. They stopped doing Gn and Kn sequences word initially, just left the nasal there. And so, so this H spelling in German represents the same. Family of sounds is that English G H that we just talked about.
0: So in English it would have been something like knihta,
2: right? Kniht,
0: kniht,
1: Nicht.
2: With a k, Knicht.
1: Kniht. Mm-hmm. The listener may already notice. This helps explain a very common uh, homophone: no and know. Right. So we have no to know as in knowledge. It's spelled K-N-O-W. And we have no as in the opposite of yes, negative. And they're both pronounced no, yet we have K-N-O-W. So it must have been that an earlier time in English, the K in K-N-O-W was pronounced. And after it was stopped being pronounced before N, then the two words sounded the same. So when English was being written and orthographies were being uh, established, These two words were pronounced differently and they're pronounced the same today because of language change. We can talk for a moment about sources of change over time. And the first important thing here to mention is right there in the title time. So time is a constant variable, if that makes sense. Meaning that over time, all languages will change, but It's not, it's not a, there used to be a time when linguists would propose that a certain number of years would bring this amount of change and a certain number of thousands of years would, people have abandoned these ideas. No matter what languages change over time, but it's not at a constant rate. They change in different ways for different reasons. Mm -hmm. These bring in our variable sources of change. Mm -hmm. We have uh, several listed here and we're talking about sound change over time, but You may notice some of these even today. Maybe you travel to another neighborhood that speaks a little differently than you do, or a country that speaks your language but a different version, and you may notice that geography, migration, isolation or contact, age, gender, ethnicity, class, social network, ideologies, sports, everything seems to affect what you're doing. So people tend to sound like their group. You may have noticed that, that if you hang out with your friends and they have an annoying thing they say, eventually you will catch yourself saying it
2: it's probably easier to observe your siblings doing it picking up speech habits from their friends rather than That's it. right
1: if you're fortunate enough to have siblings you can observe that way as well
2: or unfortunate as the case may be
1: or unfortunate <laughs> so uh, i want to talk for a second about isolation or contact cuz this is a bit of a binary feature meaning either you were in isolation as a community or you were in contact In my experience in the Pacific, you can look at so-called Eastern Polynesian languages, which include Hawaiian, Maori, spoken in New Zealand, and Rapa Nui, spoken on what in English is called Easter Island. All three of these languages came from the same language at a certain time in the past, perhaps 1,500 years ago or more. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that Rapa Nui, the one spoken on Easter Island, was the first one to separate from the group. So over time, the Maori and Hawaiian kept having voyages with the Polynesian to contact Polynesians that were in, in geographically in between them. Because of that, Hawaiian and Maori, even though it's separated by a great distance, are more similar to each other than they are to Rapa Nui, which was isolated and therefore changed the most because it didn't have the reassuring contact of its uh, kind of relative communities. And contact, you can see it in your everyday life. When you touch people, not physically, uh, not when you were... <laughs>
0: especially not now. <laughs>
1: Those days are gone. Even six feet away from someone, uh-huh. you can still uh, change your language based on a uh, neighboring community. So, p- yeah, so...
0: accommodation as well.
1: And um, we should
2: point out that we're, we're talking about things like pronunciations of single vowels or consonants, as well as new words, new mm-hmm. phrases, all levels, right? All,
0: all levels language. of linguistics, all levels of language. Even grammar. Yes. And we'll talk more about variation in another episode, too. Too much to talk about.
1: I can't yeah. wait for the variation podcast. I'm very excited to learn as much as possible. Absolutely. Very okay.
0: Even more linguisticky on that topic later.
1: <laughs> so in, uh, I wanted to give one example of a very natural sound change. And this is the historic change of P to F to H. And for the simplicity of this conversation, we're representing these sounds as phonemes because they were phonemes in the speakers' minds at that time. In a future episode or a blog post, we'll expand on historical method and the conventions they use um, in comparative method.
2: Just a reminder, phoneme means a distinctive sound as represented in the mind. And let's also note about H. That letter name is a bit weird because it doesn't contain the sound in question. We're talking about the sound. Huh. <laughs> Hello. Although have you heard uh English speakers who call the letter H. Oh, I
1: yeah. I have in Australia. Yeah, they've restored that. They've rectified that little deficiency. They've yeah. done the right thing.
0: <laughs> it makes a lot more sense.
1: <laughs> All right, so we want to look at modern languages because some of them have retained the P. With these arrows, I'm trying to indicate that P is the old sound in these languages and that some made the change from P to F, and some made the change from F to H. And there's good uh, physiological and phonetic reasons for this, right? You can see P, if you, I'm going to move close to the camera and if you're watching, you can see, I'll put P between vowels, a-pa, a-pa. You can see my lips closing to touch together. When I make the fa a-pa, fa. you can see the lips come close together. Although in English, we make an F by touching the lips to the teeth. In some languages, they have a similar sound where both lips touch. Interesting theory about why that emerged in languages for another podcast.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, Tyler, you're going to have to wait for the F to me.
0: <laughs> listeners. You too, listeners and uh, watchers have to watch the space for that one.
1: This brings <laughs> us a puzzle Staying on the edge why? of your... for a while. <laughs> why F to H? Why would we have F to H? Because when you see the F, a fa, and you see the H, a ha, the lips don't move at all with the H.
2: There is no H to see.
1: There's <laughs> no h to c. Well, the reason that the sound change is so natural is actually the acoustic properties, when people hear it. So there's a mix of both that makes this sound change a very good example. So first among, uh, oh, that's what I was saying. Some languages retain the older sound. Our first example comes from Indo-European. Yay. And we can see a p to f change between Spanish and English, meaning Spanish has kept the older sound. I am not claiming that English came from Spanish. No, I'm claiming they both long enough ago, thousands of years ago, came from the same language and retained a word for father.
2: Just like you did not come from your older brother or sister.
1: That's right, perfect analogy, Tyler. (laughs) So in Spanish, the word for father is padre. And in English, it's father, I just used it. These are cognates.
2: English and Spanish are related languages, and in an earlier stage when they were the same language, these two words, these two modern words, were identified in the same ancestral word.
1: So the relationship between padre and father is more like a relationship between cousins than a relationship between parent and children.
0: Nice familial analogy.
1: Okay, our next example is, comes from Portuguese and Spanish. Uh, and it is the word for oven. So Portuguese uses the word forno that begins with an f. It's spelled f o r n o, and in Spanish uses the term orno, h o r n o. Now this is a little bit uh, a little bit of of a sideways one because you don't pronounce the h in Spanish, but the spelling has kept it, which makes it a good example for the people watching. And the reason the spelling kept it is the same reason we have an H in honest, because it used to be pronounced at some point. So, horno, the Spanish word uh, for oven, it was at one point pronounced horno.
2: Let me, before we move on, let me briefly mention on that father word, the Irish cognate
1: hmm.
2: of this word or is aher. It loses its P, just like Spanish has lost that old P. Is
1: that P to F to H
2: to About zero? F, rather. That one was not a P. Sorry. It's <laughs> lost that F. Is it
0: to zero or is it to H? It
2: becomes zero in Spanish Irish. In, um, in Irish.
1: For those that are listening, Tyler has written the, is that correct, the Indo-European form of father? That's right, yeah. Underneath the... To the right of which uh, father. On the right side of the screen there. And for those listening, that is star. That's what you put before reconstructed forms. Star P... Capital H, because there there's a laryngeal hypothesis for another podcast. Trust okay. that capital H means a different thing <laughs> from lowercase h. Big
0: like podcast on, on IE.
1: <laughs> we have to have one eventually. Yeah. <laughs> it's P, capital H, T, E, R. So you can see that some things have changed, particularly the orthography has p- preserved some aspects of it. Our final example comes from Oceanic. Oceanic is a language family within the Austronesian language family. These languages are spoken in the Pacific. So um, I have selected three languages from the Pacific that represent different stages in the sound change P to F to H because the proto-oceanic form, the common language they all descend from, had a P at the beginning of the word. The P is still reflected in Roviana, my favorite language, and it's from the Solomon Islands. And in the Roviana word, uh, I think this used, word is used kind of like for building or meeting hall today, though it probably came from a word for house or building, is pile And they've added an E in there. Pile. In Samoan, the word for house or building can be fale. In Hawaiian, the word for house or building can be hale. So you have pilele fale, and hale. We're only focused on the P and F and H. So what happened is all these languages came from an ancestor language that had a P at the beginning of the word, and one of them, Roviana, retained the P. They kept the P. Samoan had a change from P to F. This probably happened at Polynesian level for Austronesian scholars listening. How then after this point, later, Hawaiian had a change of F to H.
0: Can I set examples?
1: Yeah, those are the examples of Just a small, tiny closed case of a, many sound changes are common. P to F to H was picked because it's so, uh, such a famous sound change in the world of linguistics. Okay, we're starting to get to a point where the next slide is gonna be really relevant for the listener, which (laughs) is that a single sound in your mind, we're calling it a phoneme, a single sound can have multiple pronunciations in different places, right? So we notice that, and of course, sounds can change in one place and not another but that will be discussed on another podcast. So I want you to recall the idea of a phoneme, which is a unit of sound in your mind. Sapir called it, a famous linguist, called it a mental target, right? So sticking with P, we're going to look at P in English, which has different acoustic properties in each environment, but the listener will recover the mental target of P in every instance. So... When you look at P in pin, spin, and nip. I'm talking about English this, words now. These are English words. Pin, spin, and nip. Indeed, P is a little bit different in each one. Now, we're representing the orthography, again, with angled brackets. And that will be in the left column on the examples. And then the phonemic form will be represented in... Slanted brackets, this is the mental targets, and then what actually comes out, the phonetic form, is represented in square brackets. Wow. Okay, so when we look at pin, we see that first of all we see this vowel again, which is it's an e vowel, not an e. We don't say pin, we say pin in my dialect of English. Yeah. So by the way, as a note. These transcriptions are transcriptions that the three of us more or less agreed upon. Speaking English that we're all speaking in North Texas, it's somewhat similar. Different speakers of English will have different transcriptions, and even with the same pronunciation can be interpreted differently sometimes, just as an aside. Mm -hmm. Taking my English as an example, when we look at pin, the P at the front of the pin is aspirated. Now aspirated means this is a linguist problem. Aspirated refers to to put simply, a small puff of air that's accompanied by the articulation of the P. In fact, there is a laryngeal mechanism, but we can talk about laryngeal mechanisms.
2: And Maybe we can-, we can just mention briefly, there's sealing for stop consonants. There's a sealing off of the articulatory apparatus at some point, buildup of pressure, and then a release, an instantaneous release. And what makes a sound aspirated is you have a lot of air pressure built up and then a strong burst upon release. And would this be the time to demonstrate?
0: Uh, That's the next slide. Coming up.
1: Okay, so thank you for the uh, phonetic definition of aspiration, Tyler. Um, Hopefully this gives you guys some idea what we're talking about when we say pin is aspirated. The P in pin is aspirated. And I'll show you how to test this on the next slide. But For now, bear with me. When we look at spin, as I have it transcribed here, In the phonemic form, of course, it's the same as the P in every other instance, but in the phonetic form, the square brackets, the P in spin does not have a puff of air. The puff of air, by the way, in pin, is represented by a small little H up next to uh, the P, to the right of the P. This is the convention in linguistics to represent aspiration. When we go all the way down to nip, I didn't do it in that pronunciation because I'm trying to be clear. <laughs> but in natural speech, I tend to say "nip," and my mouth does not open again. I don't usually say "nipa," right? Or "nip," or "nip." Mm-hmm. Any version with the mouth opens, I don't usually say it. I usually say "nip," and that's it. It's the end of the word. Mm-hmm. So I have a mm-hmm. small symbol there above the p that looks like a little right angle, and that means unreleased. So the P as mentioned in the very beginning, you close the mouth and the lips touch. The release dictates aspiration or no aspiration. With no release, there is no aspiration. It's an entirely different articulation. So with P alone, we have three different articulations in English. I wanna give a small explanation of why this is. It's not, it's not arbitrary. P is only aspirated in initial position we can talk more about syllables later but right. for now it suffice to say that if p is in the front of a word it will be aspirated do you want to you don't want to mention the onset of a stress syllable too like
0: uh let's save it yeah, yeah yeah let's save that small
1: note for the linguists who are listening we're aware of the stress <laughs> conditioning <Yeah>.
0: and
1: tactics <laughs> to keep things simple we're looking at one-syllable words. Mm -hmm. And within this domain, we can say, at the beginning of a word, P will be aspirated. In spin, it's also a one-syllable word. Mm -hmm. And P is unaspirated because it follows S. So S is the beginning of the word. P comes after that. No more aspiration, right? But
0: I want to also mention that there's variation, right, for other reasons. Like you said, emphatic, right? So if you're saying nip, right,
1: or stop. (laughs) Stop. Um,
0: expressing There's, a, there's yeah.
1: variation among communities and within a single spe- speaker even. Absolutely. And those, uh, I think as Lisa was pointed to, can be conditioned by um, context. For example, if you believe someone cannot hear you, you may articulate in a way that you wouldn't normally in casual speech. All right, just as our linguistic note for this page, um, this pattern of different articulation in different environments, all resolving to a single mental target, is called complementary distribution. So P is never aspirated in that position after S, but it's always aspirated at the beginning and always unreleased at the end. So even though the sounds are different, they don't contrast. So you're able to resolve them to the same target in your mind.
2: Right. For other languages, you can get a sp versus sp contrast, but not English.
1: Right, these are not universal rules. They may not even be true for all varieties of English. I doubt it, in fact. But for the variety that we speak, that I'm speaking right now, this um, rule describes the pattern. Okay, now you might be reaching for your wallet right now because I just gave you a lot of claims and no way to test it. (laughs) So test it for yourself. So I've given you this uh, working definition of aspiration of a P. So it's a very constrained definition, and it's only constrained to this conversation, of course. It's a puff of air that accompanies the release of P when it is in the beginning of a word. So how can you test this? Well, you can use your hand or a piece of paper. Uh, I think I'm-
0: (laughs) We're doing magic tricks over here.
1: So due to my screen, there we go. I've got one where you can see it now. OK, I want you to loudly say pin and loudly say spin. So when you look at my screen, you see pin and spin. spin. Peter, I recommend,
2: recommend holding it at two points across from each other so, it can easily, so the paper can easily
1: flex. I'll hey. try this spearman again. It seems to disappear. Pin. Spin.
0: Yeah. Yep, I saw it. Yeah.
1: Now there's a little bit of movement with spin, but there's a big noticeable movement with pin. If you don't have a piece of paper, or if you want to feel it for yourself, you can also use your hand, although you will not be able to see it when I demonstrate this, because my hand is not going to move. <laughs> but when you put your hand up to your nose as such, you will say, pin, and spin. You can really feel the puff of air on your hand when you say pin. Of course, air is coming out for spin as well. That's how... For uh, the release. That's how... Yeah, that's, that's how uh, sounds generally work. <laughs> but generally speaking, air comes from out of the lungs and you stop it for a while or or put some stricture on it. So some air is going to come out with spin, but you will notice a sharp puff with pin, right? And the paper should move more or you should feel it more in your hand when you do it. We have a couple other homemade tests for other things. If you're interested in this, uh, I think it's very important to test these kind of things so you know when you're out in the wild whether something is aspirated or not. I think it's good to not just test this with p, but test it with k and t as well. We call these voiceless stops in English. That part, um,
0: we'll get to that, that part. That.
1: Mm-hmm. that part is not as important, the technical term, and we'll talk more about articulation when we talk about IPA in the next uh, podcast. But for now, just test it with Kate, skate, Tor, and store. See what you think. See if you can recognize the pattern. Okay, continuing on, we're talking about words not being letters, again. The point is, not to sound too redundant, but I can't say it enough, words are not made of letters. Now, when you're writing words, I understand they are, but when we are talking about sounds, especially in a language you're trying to learn, it's important to think of words being composed of sounds rather than being composed of letters that's because written forms are secondary to the spoken forms, the same way that writing is secondary to speaking or signing. We're not focused on sign language here, but it's important to keep reminding you sign languages are natural languages as well. So natural language, addition to the analogy of a single individual, natural language itself is extremely old, while writing is relatively new. You might not think writing is new. You might even argue it's perhaps 10,000 years old. We don't have evidence that, we don't have historical documented evidence that language is older than 10,000 years old, but we do have evidence when it comes to the comparative method and how mm. many languages there families there are and how many distinct ones there are. Even if all language came from a single instance, there couldn't be this many language families in 10,000 years. All evidence of the science of language suggests that language is at least, say a hundred thousand years old. Some claiming as far as two to four million years old. Mm-hmm. Kind of hard to say, you know, <laughs> how it happened because we have no records of it. Uh, eventually, we have we'll
2: microphones event- that sensitive to reach. <laughs> we
1: don't have microphones. We don't have little tiny uh, wormholes. We can look through the past, Dad, or a time machine. If we ever do, uh, I'm going back to Proto World. We're gonna check it out. I'll send you a recording. <laughs> but until then, take my word for it that language is much older than writing and people were transmitting languages from one generation to the next for a 1000 generations at least before writing was invented.
2: On this point it's worth pointing out if you know any blind people they acquire spoken language without any problem. Absolutely. Or without any reference to the written language even so that shows that right. writing cannot, at least for them, it cannot be primary. So it's probably not primary for the rest of us either.
1: Mm-hmm. The same in deaf communities The, the uh, children speaking, um, whether they are deaf or not, can acquire sign language very easily. Many people I know try to teach their children sign language before written um, spoken language because it's sometimes actually easier to acquire. There are even theories called the gestural theory that sign language preceded spoken language in humans. Mm-hmm. All this to say, writing is an advent. Writing is an invention. Mm -hmm. Writing is something we agree upon and it's a pretty useful tool. Maybe our
0: greatest invention.
1: I would agree with that. I can't think of anything better off the top of my head. It's the
2: best thing before sliced bread.
1: (laughs) 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 Okay, we're introducing a new term in this next title where we say learning a new L2 or heritage language. Now, in L two, we have L two plus here because we're adding a little nuance. In conventionally, in linguistics, we use L one to refer to your native language. That is to say, the language you acquired as a child from your environment, and it could be more than one language. Yes, more than one L one. More than one best friend also possible. What's that? Can you have more than one best friend? Totally. Nah, Lisa's my best friend. Sorry, Tyler. (laughs) Okay, so um, L2 is used for any language acquired after an L1, but if you are an adult language learner, it might matter to you your level of competency in different languages and which domain you use them in. For example, you might learn a language as an adult but speak it every single day, and then you might have a language which you only study, you know, once a week or something, and you're allowed to differentiate these. We're introducing an additional term heritage language right a heritage language is often used to describe a language which is maybe the language of your family mm-hmm. but maybe not completely acquired as an l1 mm-hmm. so sometimes people grow up speaking for example um you may sp- you you may have a language in your house that your parents speak to each other maybe if they immigrated from one country to another or moved from a community where the language is spoken to a different community within the same country. And most of the conversations happens in the language of the community you're living in, but a small amount of it may happen in the language of the community that you're from.
0: There can also be overlap between the L1, your first language, and the heritage language. Like in my case, my parents spoke Korean at home and I absorbed it, Um, and then English I learned at school. Um, And then later I took a renewed interest in Korean. So now it's more, you know, more of a balanced bilingual in it.
2: When I was um, ages 10 to 20, we lived in Germany. And so we used English was our heritage language. We used English at home and everywhere else outside the home was German.
1: There's a lot of uh, of nuances
2: Hosts have experiences with heritage language.
1: Unfortunately, uh, of us three, I have the least experience with a heritage language. It may surprise you to learn that Shulky is not an English surname, but actually, (laughs) of course it's not. Um, When I was a very small child, I remember my grandfather trying to teach me Irish Gaelic. Like, you know, I don't remember any of it, of course, but I could claim that that was my heritage language. So we have varying degrees of competency. While Tyler claimed that his heritage language is English while he was in German, (laughs) he has fantastic uh, competency in English and 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 Lisa in Korean, but I, I don't know you know five words in Irish. So there's a varying level of what it is. Some connection may be more cultural mm-hmm. and community based and identity based, and some might be more circumstances of travel, such as Tyler's. The important thing is that we are acknowledging that heritage languages do exist and it might be different from a second language. Your heritage language might still be your first language too. Mm -hmm. Suffice it to say, it is possible to master (laughs) the written system of a language, but not be able to speak or understand the natural spoken version, right? Which is
0: the case with a lot of language learners, right? They've mastered the written system, but um, yeah, still need to uh, think about the
1: production, right? That was my experience since I studied six semesters of Japanese and went to Japan for one month. And I, you know, had memorized over a thousand kanji and I had like all my essential phrases for bootstrapping, but I couldn't understand anybody at all, (laughs) and nobody could understand me. I was like, what am I doing wrong? I would write it down and people be like, Oh, what am I doing wrong? Did
2: you ever figure it out?
1: No, No, I'm still pretty weak. But in Portuguese, my situation was exactly reversed. I learned Portuguese exclusively from listening to spoken language, and writing has been a secondary thing for me. And from my experience with Portuguese, which maybe Portuguese is written a little more similar to how it's spoken than, say, Japanese, but I mean, I don't know.
2: Hard to judge, but yeah, it seems comparable.
1: Certainly written, as far as I can tell, more closely the way it's spoken than English. Yeah. And I would say that learning sounds first, when you read the writing later, you're like, oh, I can see why they might spell it that way. But but learning writing first and learning the sounds later sometimes is quite quite confusing, particularly, I imagine, for speakers of English. Yeah. And again, we have the note, some natural languages are signed not spoken. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Important to remember. We should also mention
2: briefly that most of the languages that we've heard of, that we think about when we think of foreign languages are written, have written standards, but numerically, in terms of all the languages spoken on earth at this moment, it's only a minority that are even written down at all.
0: Yeah, that's a good point to make.
1: Or if they're written down, it's not in any sort of standardized convention. Speakers kind of negotiate it between each other. Okay. Now, importantly, if you're listening to the LangoPod Pod. I have to assume you're interested in learning languages. So how can this help you learn languages? Well, first of all, worth noting, not all languages use an alphabet. Tyler has provided us an example here. Would you uh, expand upon that?
2: Yes, so uh, this is really going to make sense if you're seeing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, For those of you who are just listening, I've I've chosen five Chinese characters, which, well, the writing system of Chinese is famously not phonetic. The most of the written marks descend from pictures of the thing that the word denotes.
1: Very first example here is
2: th, which means the child. And the second one has that same basic graph but adds a little roof component on top. This is pronounced th. Lisa, do you remember the meaning for this one?
0: Uh, so uh, it. Is it there? It
2: means a written word.
0: A r- oh letter.
2: As in kanji, um, kanja, Yeah, jean uh, of kanji. So. so again, the first one, z child. Second one, z. Third one is a different graph. This is nǔ, which means female, woman. Then I, on the in the fourth one, I've added the same top component from number two and put it on number three. This one is an, which means to be settled or peaceful. Hmm. And then the last of the five that I've chosen is hao, which means to be good. It combines the woman graph with the child, and the point I want to make is, you, it's really hard to predict from the written form what the sound's going to be. In the first two characters, 子, 子, we can easily perceive the similarity of sound. That's the reason that the second character is written the way it was. But there's no similarity in sound between shared by nu,
1: an, and ha. even though many strokes are shared, which might not be obvious to the people just listening. Mm -hmm. These graphs are similar looking, and you might expect, in one case, as Tyler has shown, there is a sound relation between the two, but in others, it falls apart.
0: Right. How big is this class that sounds the same?
1: So in terms of just
2: characters, character composition types, the bulk of them, something like 90% are phonosemantic, where they're chosen for sound similarity. OK. That's actually most of them, something like 85 to 95%. This, there's, there's much the, smaller sets of these sort of arbitrary pairings. I'd like to point out about these five words. There are only three distinct written shapes associated with them. So we have the child and the woman is primary, and then that roof doesn't occur on its own. But it's only those three parts that are combining with each other.
0: And for more on that, there's a great blog post Tyler's written The Mandarin series is called Mandaringuistics. So please check it out on our blog.
1: Okay, so all this to say again, I'm on the wrong slide. Okay, the more recently a language was first written, as previously mentioned, uh, the more resemblance between written and spoken forms, typically, especially when they're using an alphabet but learning to speak and hear a new language um, is a separate skill from writing, right? And if you are interested in speaking a new language, you may want to start thinking about sounds independently of writing. Absolutely.
0: Right, after all, it's essential for pronunciation, can lead to misunderstandings.
1: It will certainly help you understand other people and inevitably help them understand you. Absolutely. For example, I wasn't gonna bring this up earlier to my great shame, but the Uh, first foreign language I tried to learn was Mandarin, in fact. And I I had no concept of tone. I didn't understand what it meant. So I was pronouncing everything in an English intonation. And I never met a single Chinese speaker who could understand anything I said. And I became very discouraged but it's because I was very focused on writing and didn't have the sound concepts I needed.
2: You had an unsound approach.
1: It was an unsound uh-huh. approach. <laughs> it did not work. So uh, now we're gonna do a regular segment we're gonna call Comparatively Speaking, <laughs> and we'll have a small example from Korean that words are not letters.
2: For today, yeah, I think in general we'll just have Various examples in a selection of languages, not always the same
1: language.
0: Yeah, so we'll take a couple languages and look at how whatever linguistic phenomena works in that language. Um, for Korean, there's a really great example of a of two different letters that are undergoing a sound change in progress. This is a sociolinguistic term, just mm-hmm. talking about um, a sound change um, happening right now um, among different speakers. Um, so the vowel A, um, this is written for those who are listening. It's written like the Korean letter that looks like an H, and it's mm-hmm. pronounced A. And then there's another combining vowel. Um, it's all plus E is E. Um, and what do you think this looks like for the letter?
2: Uh, uh, it's like it's a out. rotated T with a, a...
0: Rotated T, yeah. Rotated <laughs> T and then a, a vertical line next to it. Um, and these two are undergoing sound change. But they used to be pronounced distinctly, um, so very distinct pronunciation a versus f. Eh. Um, actually, the h-looking letter can be either closer to ash or a, ah, or closer to uh, a, depending on the word. And then the the turn t and vertical line one f. Eh. Uh, is much shorter um, but nowadays the pronunciations are actually converging um, and they're both pronounced more like eh, the shorter vowel quality right and so some high frequency words a lot of them are affected by this so for example the word for my is nay nay um, and the word for yes is ne, nay. Um, But today you'll hear speakers saying them exactly the same, right? So you could say, my house, ne cheap, and then yes house, they cheap, right? So it sounds exactly the same. So this is really important for learners to uh, know so they can understand what's going on and also produce that, right? So they're becoming homophones.
1: Does this also create homophones in the English romanization or not English. But no,
0: no, afraid not. So that's why also I don't like romanization for that reason. It doesn't capture the sound changes or the sound quality very well. Hmm. Right, I think it's so the romanization is uh, for this one up here, the H looking one is AE, right? But for English speakers, what do you want to say that? Uh, what do you think that represents like?
2: Oh, you uh, mean it's AE?
0: Yeah.
1: I don't I have, it them in have them in many English in. I would probably pronounce it as like a an uh or a ah sound uh, naively. Yeah. not yeah. guessing it's going to be the same as the E sound. Or yeah. Similar.
0: There's a lot of variation with romanization. In fact, the just um, the romanizations for Hangul, the Korean alphabet, are different, right? Sometimes H-A-N-G-U-L, sometimes H-A-N-G-E-U-L.
2: Or a K instead of a G.
0: K, yeah. So uh, I prefer to use just the Korean alphabet. All right, some Mm -hmm. more uh, comparatively speaking examples from Japanese. I'm going to turn it over to Tyler
2: Sensei. Mm -hmm. So here I've included as the first example what we call a couple of particles. Particles are little grammatical words, and in Japanese they help us sort of find our way through the sentence. The first one, pronounced wa, is the topic marker. There's another one, uh, the, the wa is shown in the example. I also mentioned e here, e means toward. And what's special about these words, what shows us that sound and letters are not the same thing, is that they're written with phonetic symbols whose usual values are ha instead of wa and he instead of e with those initial H's. So my nice example sentence here means in the garden, there are two chickens. We'll hear the same sequence of sounds many times. It goes, mm-hmm. iwaniwa niwatori ga ni So it. Peter do you recall the f- any of these words from your Tori German? means bird Sorry which one Tori Good Tori is the simple word for bird here we have a compound niwatori meaning the and chicken
1: Ni means two numeral 2 Two or oh yeah that two there's a Ah, look at that. This homophone in English and Japanese is a T-O-2. post position and the number two. It's a, oh, a double language homophone. How did we miss this in the earlier slide?
0: Oh, <laughs>
1: Let us not forget.
0: Super.
2: So going to the very first Niwa means garden. And then that Ni that follows means in here, in the garden. And then we get the topic marking Wa. As for in the garden is how this goes. Niwa, Niwa. Then we have this compound. Garden bird. niwatori means chicken. Ga marks a subject. Then we have a count, a numeral expression, two feathered animals, two birds, ni wa. And then we get our verb comes last, imas. they exist, they are living. Okay, and then another aspect of Japanese writing that shows a divergence from the sound. We have these very common written sequences of e i, or o u. So sequences of vowel symbols, but these two in most cases, unless there's a like a, a, a specific kind of boundary there, have fused into single long vowels. So whenever we write EI as in sensei, we don't actually say EI anywhere, it's a, become a long a sound. And this OU sequence is written twice in the word Tokyo, where it's heard as a long O sound. Nice. Questions about that?
1: Very interesting. Cool. I can't believe we just discovered a 2-2 two, two, knee-knee <laughs> homophone across languages. Sure, Levi will be delighted too.
0: Yeah, I think this is uh, <laughs> worthy of a tweet. <laughs> tweet.
1: It is tweet-worthy.
0: Okay. Now it's time for F, the ineffable. I always say ineffable. You got it. I got it though. And this is our recurring segment about wordplay and just fun language, phenomenon, um, because at Lango we take language humor very seriously. Yes, we do. Very seriously. <laughs> um, and for this week, this first episode uh, segment, we're going to look at silent letters in English.
1: That's right. So, um, can't silent letters. Look at, letters, you
0: not hear
1: them. <laughs> look at this. It's not what we mean when we say voiceless, but. <laughs> 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 That's again a topic for another conversation. So, a silent letter in this context is a letter that is part of a spelling but not pronounced. And if you can read and write in English or are interested in it, you have surely noticed this by now. It is a common thing in English. We've already pronou- uh, pointed out one when we talked about no, as in the kind of knowledge to know. Also that, word,
2: that word surely you just use has a silent E in
1: it. Surely. In it sure <laughs> okay so we have picked we we have behind the scenes been working on making an entire alphabet with <laughs> silent letters and we have picked top three highlights to share with you and our first one is the silent letter b as in subtle uh, debt would be another one yeah and it's self-descriptive of course so <laughs> um the next one is g as in Nat right? Nash. Maybe at one time it was pronounced ganat. I don't know. Do you know that, Tyler? Probably Gnat. I think, with an ash. Gnat. So we kept the vowel. All right.
2: Wiktionary is a great source. Let me just take a peek.
1: Our third one, while well, Tyler's looking, is L, as in cold.
0: <laughs>
1: I mean, could. <laughs> Nobody pronounces it as cold. I avoided salmon because lots of people actually say salmon, including my own mother.
0: And my mother,
1: yes. Really? Yeah, uh, I think it must be, you know, you read it enough times, you say, well, I'm. I, you know, I need to put the well, L in there.
2: It's yep. a feature of motherese, as we've just established. <laughs> <Indeed>.
0: <laughs> I'm going to be saying it soon as a new mother.
1: Sure. <laughs> we need a linguisticky note for motherese. That is, believe it or not, oh, yeah. the technical linguistics term for how parents speak to children.
2: Those exaggerated vowel qualities and pitch uh, patterns. So the old English spelling of this word "gnat" I'll put it on the screen was g n a sh double t So mm. probably a really short
1: vowel here. "Gnat." 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 How you might say "good night" in a hurry. "Gnat." <laughs> <You're from> Texas. <laughs>
0: Texanism. "Gnat."
1: Okay, so we have a challenge for you.
2: Oh, just let me point. Sorry, can I just point out the "l" and "could." doesn't belong there. It was never pronounced with an L sound. It just crept in by analogy with wood where it belongs.
1: It's a truly silent letter. There's no historical <laughs> it <in>. correspondence. Deadly. <laughs> okay. So. Deadly.
0: Uh, SBD. Okay. Challenge.
1: That's not the challenge. What the <laughs> challenge is, is for each letter of the alphabet, can you think of a word in which that letter is silent? Basically, can you make an alphabet of silent letters? So um, maybe if you were going to go on to C, you might say the C in Cent, S-C-E-N-T. You might. You might say that. Uh, uh, We would like you to share your lists with us, and we will tell you where at the end of the podcast.
0: And you may win something. You might win. You may. You may. <laughs> you might and you may.
1: Put together those alphabets of silent letters and send them to us.
0: Yes, please. <laughs> All right, and uh, a little bit of wordplay um, from our new book. It's called Some Fun, Tom Pun in Korean. And the title itself is a pun, a play on these words because Tom means island. And then pun is how you would pronounce fun in Korean because there's no F. Pun. So island fun as well. Um, And I'm gonna tell you a hilarious joke from this collection. This collection features all of our favorite Konglish or Korean English jokes. And Tyler, there you go. He's gonna momentarily show the book here. uh, Beautifully designed by our illustrator, Farah Yu, um, and edited together by me and Tyler. Um, And I'm gonna share one of them, uh, one of my favorites. Has to do with the cookie. All right. All right, guys. So, what did the cookie say to his friends when he was ready to go?
1: I'll, I'll guess. I'm baked. I don't know.
0: <laughs> That's really cute. That's a nice one for our English collection later. Um, all right. So, the explanation um, in Korean, when it's time to go, you say to your friends, Kaja. Hey, that means let's go. And this phrase sounds like the word for cookie, which is kwa which means snack in Korean. Right? And cookie is a type of snack. So when the bo- bossy cookie is ready to go, it will say to its other cookie friends, oh.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Peter likes it.
2: <laughs> I approve. For
0: more of those gems, please check out our book. It's available on Amazon in both printed and ebook formats. Um, and lots of hilarity, you'll laugh, and maybe you'll occasional groan in there, too.
2: <laughs> it will be growing on you.
0: They'll grow on growing on you for sure. All right, also, we want to talk a little bit about our upcoming events. Um, new for since um, the corona uh, for the <laughs> pandemic era, we've started these online conversation hours, kind of as a source, uh, a way to practice your target language. Um, and also just a source of fun, um, in this otherwise kind of grim time, right? Very um, happy. we host weekly online conversation hours, um, in your target language upcoming, we have English next Thursday, Spanish conversation and happy hour. So B Y O B
2: let's read these out in full in case people are just listening.
0: Oh that. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So next week, Thursday, June 18th at 5:30, English conversation hour, uh, the following day Friday the 19th at 530 Spanish conversation and happy hour and both of these are actually focused on um, idioms and slang okay. and on, They're on
2: zoom and you can join us from anywhere.
0: Yes, anywhere from your couch,
2: but the times are Dallas yes. Central. Yes.
0: Good to point out um, and then the week after that Tuesday June 23rd at 4 p.m. So a little bit earlier um, is the Korean conversation hour. Um, and this one will be a um, role play situation. Um, it's gonna be a Korean, at the Korean restaurant. Mm. Okay, so this is for a little bit advanced beginner level for this one. All right, um, for more conversation hours and when they're happening, check out our website for the schedule. And if you're interested, drop us a message and we'll add you, we'll email you directly with the invite. Alright, um, if you want to learn with us, please do. Um, if you're interested in our language programs, uh, please contact, uh, contact us at learn at langoinstitute.com. And then if you have any questions for any of us, uh, please contact us, um, our first name, at langoinstitute.com. So Peter at Lango, Tyler at Lango, Lisa at Lango. Um, and it could be anything about the podcast, Ask Peter. Um, or even uh, the languages that we specialize in. So, Peter, what are what are yours?
1: Um, well, many Austronesian languages, many, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you're not interested in languages with small uh, small numbers of speakers, I think the official languages I'm doing right now are English and Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese.
2: Hey, Peter, you should join our, our Japanese and Chinese since you have um,
1: some experience. I, with-
2: And
1: then
0: Tyler, you have a lot, a bunch too.
2: One or two.
0: Yep. Um, And then me for Korean um, or anything about language variation and change. All right. um, And then I'm going to turn over to Peter to plug our next episode. All
1: right. So please join us uh, for our next Lango podcast, which will be coming to you soon. We are planning to talk about the IPA and we will come with many more things. What's that?
0: Not the beer, but you can bring an IPA
1: too. You're welcome to bring your own form of IPA. The (laughs) version we'll be discussing in the podcast is International Phonetic Alphabet. And we will come with many more fun segments for Comparatively Speaking, FD Ineffable, and even maybe some more puns if you're loving Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs)
2: sound mind and body.
0: Absolutely. That's sound advice. All right. So thank you for joining <laughs> us on this. Oh my goodness. You too.
1: Yes. Thank you everyone for joining us.
0: Thanks for joining our first episode. Um, and we will speak soon.
1: Bye y'all.
0: Bye, y'all.